It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. So begins the famous novel by Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. Two cities are Paris and London during days leading up to the French Revolution. Revelation is also a tale of two cities. Only it's God's view of the world leading up to Jesus' return. The two cities are Babylon and New Jerusalem. And last Sunday we looked at Babylon. She's no insignificant city. She has worldwide dominion. Uh, She has powerful allies. She's able to sway nations by her wealth. She's an impressive city. And it causes John to marvel. But we also learned of Babylon's judgment. Her alliance with evil will prove self-destructive. God will see to it that Babylon falls. And that brings us to chapter 18. Chapter 18 reflects on the aftermath of Babylon's judgment... Not that Babylon has already fallen in our present experience, but from heaven's perspective, it's saying it's as good as done. But if Babylon falls, what does that mean for people setting their hopes in Babylon? If Babylon falls, what does that mean for those captivated by her riches? If Babylon falls, what does that mean for those oppressed by her? Let's read and find out the answers to these questions. Verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, "'Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins.'" lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, You mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. 
And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste, and all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stand far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, What city was like the great city? They threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas! Alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, and he threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. This is the word of the Lord. To grasp what's going on here, I'd like to answer four questions. And the first is, who is Babylon? Who is Babylon? Chapter 17 had answered that for us in part, and it's helpful to review what we learned. For starters, we learned that Babylon is a great prostitute. Chapter 17, verse 1. At least she's, she's personified as a great prostitute. She's not like the bride of Christ who remains loyal to her covenant husband. No, Babylon runs around with other lovers, other false gods, She's a city full of abominations, chapter 17, verse 4. And we talked about those abominations, idolatry, sinful sex, corrupt political alliances, injustice to the poor, sorcery, false religion, confidence in riches. She is a city that normalizes compromise. She normalizes moral compromise. That's what she's about. We also observe that Babylon's influence is far-reaching, didn't we? The the kings of the earth have slept with her in chapter 17, verse 2. Peoples and multitudes and nations and languages sit under her control, chapter 17, verse 15. 
And much of that is connected to her great wealth. Remember, she is seated on many waters, meaning Babylon controls the commerce. She's number one in the world, and she flaunts it. And that's what entices people to form these alliances with her. Your best life now, you can have it as long as you get in bed with Babylon. She's got it all. According to chapter 18, verse 11 and following, she's, she's got all the jewels and clothing you could want, all of the industry and luxury you could want, all the spices and food you could want, all the, all the delicacies and splendor you could want. Now, the wealth that's being listed here isn't, isn't bad on its own. Wealth can be used in service of the Lord's work. Wealth can also be used to serve your neighbor who's in need. But that's not what Babylon is about. Babylon's uh, wealth is about self-glory. In chapter 18, verse 3, the merchants, they, it says that they grow rich from the power of her luxurious living. And that phrase there, luxurious living, has to do with running wild in excess. It's this unbridled spending and then doing whatever it takes to have more. In chapter 18, verse 7, she boasts, doesn't she? I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. So this confidence in her wealth has led to viewing herself in these invincible categories. Her wealth isn't serving God. It replaces God. She's seeking to be God, is the idea. Nor is it serving neighbor. Did you see the end of verse 13? Cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves. Literally, bodies. She sells bodies. And that should make your heart sink given our own nation's history. And to make sure you get it, the angel clarifies, that is, human souls. Image bearers treated like commodities, just thrown in with the spices and the animals. Babylon represents the sort of people who devalue human souls all to create more and more and more wealth. Babylon also forms corrupt political alliances. In chapter 17, verse 3, she rides the beast, which symbolizes these political powers across time who oppose Jesus. And then in chapter 17, verse 6, we learn that she also persecutes the church. She's drunk with the blood of the saints which could be outright acts of murder. It could also be her influence shaping the economy and pressuring others such that Christians are not allowed to buy and sell. Right? We saw that in chapter 13, verse 17. So in sum, Babylon symbolizes the whole system of evil that opposes the Lord and oppresses the Lord's people. Okay, and in that sense, she's much like the Babylon we know from the Old Testament. Only this one is much worse, isn't it? Babylon of old was but a shadow of the Babylon we find in, in Revelation. This one is mother of the earth's abominations. Also, when John describes Babylon in, in chapter 18, uh, he uses imagery not just from the one ancient city of Babylon... He includes Old Testament imagery that described unfaithful Jerusalem, that describes pagan cities like Nineveh and Edom and Tyre. 
In fact, much of the language in chapter 18 comes from the fall of Tyre in Ezekiel 27 and 28. If you, wanna, if you want some homework to, to read. Uh, in other words, Babylon the Great comprises many kingdoms known for their opposition to God. That's who she is. Here's a second question. Where is she going? Where is she going? According to chapters 17 and 18, she's going down. Right? We saw that much in in verse 16 of chapter 17, where God puts it into the hearts uh, of the beast and his cohorts to, to turn against Babylon. But her downfall then gets reiterated in chapter 18, okay, at, at the beginning and at the end. Okay, so, so uh, you see the two bookends there on the screen. They're very, very similar uh, in this chapter. So in chapter 18, verse 1, you get an angel, a great angel with great authority, right? And he announces the fall of Babylon. Fallen, fallen, he says, is Babylon the great. And that's from Isaiah 21, verse 9, where this watchman is, is looking out uh, for approaching judgment, and as the armies begin to crest the horizon, he knows their doom is inevitable. So he says, fallen. Fallen is Babylon, and we're getting the same here. The downfall of Babylon is certain. Uh, events have already been set in motion to take her down. All right, and then the angel describes the aftermath as a desolate city. In verses 1 to 2, she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt or, or hangout for unclean, uh, every unclean spirit, a, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Now, what's interesting here is that back in chapter 17, verse 4, what was her cup full of? The golden cup she holds up in her hand are full of unclean things, okay? And, and, what, and the idea here is that God will give her over to those unclean things and it will make her become a city that's totally unfit for human life. We find similar judgments on Babylon in Isaiah 13 and Jeremiah chapter 50. All that will be left are these unclean scavengers picking up the remains. That's what sin leads to. Similar imagery comes in verse 21 as well. Uh, once again, an angel, if you look at verse 21, this is the, so the other side of the bookend. Uh, I, I, we see a mighty angel. He announces the fall of Babylon, only this time he illustrates it, doesn't he? He picks up this, this millstone, uh, millstone you know, being this, this great stone. They turn to crush the grain, sign of prosperity here in an economy. Yanks it up, hurls it into the... Uh, see to illustrate Babylon's downfall, right? And he says, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. So she will sink never to rise again. And then just like verse 2, the angel describes the aftermath as a desolate city. Verse 22 says the... the um, uh, the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more, and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. So Babylon, as Revelation has characterized it, is like this one great Mardi Gras, right? It, it is 
It is, uh, we've talked about it as Vanity Fair in Pilgrim's Progress. It's filled with all sorts of houses and lands and riches and delights and lusts and pleasures and games and adulteries and all of it strategically designed by the enemy to keep you distracted from the heavenly Jerusalem. But when judgment falls, Babylon's party will end. No music, no industry, no light, no joy, all of the pleasant signs of society will be no more. That's where she's going. Why, though, is she judged? Why is she judged like this? That's our next question. In these same bookends, verses 1 to 3 and 21 to 24, we find several reasons that it lists. Look at verse 3. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So again, in Revelation, sexual immorality is not limited to sinful sex. It is, uh, it is a symbol for spiritual harlotry, which might include sinful sex, but it's, it, it is broader. It is unfaithfulness of all sorts. Babylon leads the nations to cheat on the Lord, uh, to make compromises with false gods of all sorts. Another reason is that the kings of the earth, it says, have committed immorality with her. So Babylon forms these political alliances that are, that are built on corruption. Also, it says, the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So she entices others with wealth to the point where they're no longer serving God, they're serving money. Look at the other book in verse, verse 23. For your, for, it says, For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, since all nations were deceived by your sorcery. So Babylon is, is keeping everyone under the spell of false worship so that her lovers stay in power. Verse 24 then gives another reason for her judgment. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. Throughout Scripture, God so identifies with His people that to mess with God's people is to mess with God. Okay? And He will not, he will not tolerate Babylon persecuting the church. He is jealous to protect His bride. But notice also God will judge Babylon for their unjust brutality in general. Right? It it doesn't only say the persecution of the church, but all who have been slain on earth. Babylon is the sort of city that expands no matter how many human lives it costs. It doesn't matter if the diamonds are covered in blood. We want the prophets. It doesn't matter if the coltan comes from the ground by 40,000 child laborers in Congo and then sold to tycoons in China. We want cell phones. It doesn't matter if we murder more babies for tissue research. We're making money here. That's how Babylon talks. 
And for that reason, God will judge her for her injustice. Her pride is another reason for judgment. As we noted earlier, she boasts in verse 7 as if she's queen. It's language from Isaiah 47, 8, where Babylon is marked marked by this proud self-sufficiency. But as James 4, 6 tells us, God opposes the proud. And that's why Babylon is judged. Her pride, her injustice, her, her idolatry, her whole agenda opposes God and the truth of his word. Her political, her economic, and her religious system is wired for self-glory and not for God's glory. When she does business, she doesn't ask, is it holy? She asks, how much is it going to make? And for this reason, God judges her. How then should we respond? How then should we respond? That's our final question. And the way we should respond is explicit. Verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. That's the first way we should respond. Now, this isn't the first time God commands his people out of Babylon. Jeremiah 51.6, go out of the midst of her, my people. Let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of the Lord. And you get similar commands in Isaiah and Zechariah. Each time God's people are, are exiles in a foreign land, in Babylon. And they must separate from the culture that that is facing God's pending judgment. And Revelation is drawing from that imagery, and he's comparing us to exiles as well. And while we're in exile, he's saying, you can't grow comfortable with Babylon. Right? There's a new Jerusalem I'm going to make for you. You can't grow comfortable in Babylon. Instead, what you need to do is come out of Babylon. We must, uh, what he's getting at here is that we must separate ourselves from those very things that invite God's judgment. We must separate ourselves from Babylon's sins. That's why he says, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Right? So break any ties with Babylon's moral compromises. Break any ties with Babylon's luxurious living. Break any ties with Babylon's corrupt politics. Why? I think there's at least three reasons here. Because her sins deserve God's judgment. Why come out of Babylon? Because her sins deserve God's judgment. Verse 4 says, Come out, lest you share in her plague, lest you share in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. There's the judgment. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup that she has mixed. Now, our English word duplicate may be better here and make it clearer. It may convey the idea better. Mix an exact duplicate. Okay, the point being that 
that God is measuring out a fitting judgment for Babylon. He continues in verse 7, As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, and I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. and She will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Pay her back, mix a duplicate, give her like measure. Now some have asked if God is here calling Christians to pay her back since there doesn't seem to be a shift in in the recipients between verses 4 and 6. And if you go that route, it's an activity that must wait until Christ returns and the saints return with Him. Until then, Romans 12 tells us, we must never avenge ourselves. More likely, though, there is a shift in viewpoint here. This is uh, very common in the laments of the Old Testament where you're just bumping along and it's, wait a second, I thought he was talking about to these people, but actually he's, there's a shift, right? And I think that's what's going on here. There's a shift in viewpoint. The voice is, uh, is commissioning the agents of God's judgment, such as the angels of chapter 16, who pour out their bowls on Babylon. Either way, the emphasis here rests not on the identity of those judging, but on the objects being judged. In these words, the Lord reveals that Babylon's sins deserve judgment and her judgment is sure to come. So that's one reason to come out of Babylon. Another reason to come out is the misery that awaits all who set their hopes in Babylon. This this is where the laments of verses 9 to 19 come into play. The the angel mentions three groups, right? You have the kings in verse 9. Uh, In particular, it's the kings who participate in Babylon's unfaithfulness. Then you get the merchants in verse 11, but these are merchants who've grown rich from Babylon's luxurious living, which we saw in verse 3. And then he speaks speaks of the seafarers, the shipmasters and the seafarers in verse 17, whose trade is on the sea. The sea here possibly symbolizing the beast's domain or the waters of chapter 17, verse 15, where the woman, uh, Babylon, dwells. In other words, these groups represent those who serve the interests of Babylon. It's not just any any and everybody. It's, It's the groups who serve the interests of Babylon. Their hopes are bound up with Babylon. But that's also why they mourn when Babylon falls. Right? Verse 9, they weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They stand far off in fear of her torment, and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the same happens in verse 16 and verse 19, where you get these same laments, alas, alas, in one hour, everything they've set their hopes in is gone. And and part of the appalling thing here is that they're, they're merely terrified of the consequences and losing their stuff. There's no fear of God in this repentance. 
They're, they're sad because Babylon has gone down, not because they have offended the Lord. Their misery is coming. These laments are written in advance to your benefit. They are written ahead of time so that you are not part of this miserable existence. God means for these laments to to peel back any fingers that you might have that are still holding on to Babylon. And I'll tell you, it's easy to get distracted with Babylon in our context. Last week I mentioned several parallels between Babylon and our own American context. Chapter 18 brings out some more, doesn't it? Babylon has a puffed-up view of herself. Far too often, the messaging in our culture is similar. We are number one, people like to say. Babylon accumulates wealth for self-glory, and one of the strongest temptations in America is the constant draw of earthly possessions. Babylon treats humans like commodities And many economic choices in our culture do not start with what's good for human life, but what will create more wealth regardless of human life. These parallels show that Babylon is alive and well today. She she entices us with all sorts of glamour and luxury, with all sorts of abominations, And we must recognize that we are vulnerable to her temptations. Do you remember the Christians at Pergamum and Thyatira from chapters 2 and 3? Right? There there were people in churches teaching that it was okay to participate in in the Roman culture's idolatry. Right? Oh, it... If you're going to make it and you've got to be part of the trade guild and offer your incense to Caesar, go ahead, it's fine. We all know you're a Christian. Sardis was another church that was asleep with worldliness. The Christians at Laodicea were leaning too much on Babylon, uh, on Babylon or Rome's wealth. And then come chapters 17 to 18. You wonder why spend so much time I mean, in comparison to the other, what, what he's covering, and why spend two full chapters on Babylon? Because he's got four of seven churches that are sleeping with her. He's trying to say, wake up, get out of Babylon. Don't you dare set your hopes there. She's doomed. She only leads to misery. Here's another reason to come out of Babylon. That's not who you are anymore. If you're a Christian, it's not who you are anymore. Listen to the command again. Come out of her, my people. My people. That's covenant language. Hosea 2.23. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. 
Leviticus 26, 12. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31, I will put my law into their minds and I will write my laws on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jesus, the Lamb, gave his life to make that possible for you. Jesus, the Lamb, spilled his blood to inaugurate that new covenant for you. Jesus, the Lamb, died to liberate you from Babylon and make you part of his new Jerusalem. That's your city. That's who you belong to now. You are God's people. You are God's kingdom of priests. So separate yourself from Babylon because grace has made you a new kind of person with a new kind of will, with new affections for holy things and a new future with dwelling with God. Come out of her, my people. Babylon leads to misery, but new Jerusalem is your never-ending joy. Babylon will hear no music, but New Jerusalem is filled with harps and songs to the Lamb. Babylon will be desolate, but New Jerusalem will make the world an Eden-like paradise. Babylon is going to sink in the sea along with all of her riches, but New Jerusalem's riches will decorate a holy dwelling place for all nations. Babylon will have no light shining in it, but New Jerusalem will have the glory of God brightening all things. Which city has your heart? Which city do you belong to? If you belong to the Lamb, that is your city. So come out of her. Here's another way to respond. Another way to respond is rejoice. Rejoice. Look at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Now, the actual rejoicing we won't hear until chapter 19, verse 1, where the great multitude sings hallelujah, right? Hallelujah. For now, though, consider why the angel calls the saints to rejoice. He says, for God has given judgment for you against her. In the larger narrative, this points us back to chapter 6, verse 10, where we see the cries of the martyrs under the altar, where they say, how long, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you avenge our blood. They're crying out, and here we're seeing the answer to their prayers. God has brought judgment for them. So what we're seeing here is that that the Lord has seen his people's sufferings under Babylon, and and he's bringing them justice. So there's good news here in knowing that God will judge our enemies. God will right all wrongs. My brother traveled to India recently, and uh, he 
and a team were visiting an orphanage and encouraging some local pastors. Uh, this is one of the pastors. I think we have a picture that he sent me. This is one of the pastors he met. And behind him uh, is their new house. Uh, when, when my brother and the team showed up to dedicate this house last Saturday, uh, the pastor shared that the day before his landlord, his landlord where he was living had evicted him because he found out he was preaching Christ to the villages. So he lost his house on one day and due to the efforts of some other believers received a brand new one on the next. My brother says uh, he carries a heavy load. He preaches and shepherds and leads music at nine village churches. He has been beaten multiple times for the gospel's sake. But he keeps trucking along and knows that the Lord sees him. And that's right. The Lord does see him. The Lord hears his cries. How long? Babylon may be at work to have him evicted, and then beaten, pressuring him to compromise and to give in. But this brother and his wife, their hearts belong to the new Jerusalem. And that's why they keep doing what they're doing. They are not swayed by Babylon's treasures or Babylon's threats. And they can rest assured that Babylon will fall. Christ's cross and resurrection have guaranteed Babylon's fall. The Lamb has already claimed victory over the beast and Babylon. His resurrection has set in motion a series of judgments that we've been reading about in Revelation, and they will eventually end Babylon and replace that abominable city of destruction with the abundant city of life. And for that reason, we should rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your judgments. And we thank you that the new Jerusalem is coming and that you have, through the blood of Jesus, made us part of it. Help us to come out of Babylon, to see the error of her ways and live for Christ more wholeheartedly. Receive honor and glory and praise for the rest of our time together as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.